Well, good morning to all of you. My name is Adam. I'm one of the pastors here at First Free Church. How many of you are here so that you can get out early for Mother's Day brunch? Anybody willing to admit that? Yeah, yeah, all right, all right. I understand that. You know, I can't do that. I don't get to do that. There's another service after this. I have to stick around. But you don't. You go enjoy, enjoy your brunch. It's going to be crazy busy, uh, but you enjoy it. Today's message, to be honest with you, is not entirely about mothers, like it's not a normal Mother's Day service. I don't have flowers all over the slides. It's not all about how you should love your mom or, or how moms are so much better than dad or any of that stuff. I know that's normal church Mother's Day fair, but um, this is not specifically a Mother's Day message, but we are in week nine, so we're almost done with our Nehemiah series. We're studying the book of Nehemiah, so it's 10 weeks of Nehemiah. We've kind of added some Easter stuff in there too, so it's gone a little longer than 10 weeks, but it's 10 different messages on Nehemiah, and today is week nine, okay? And it's not specifically a Mother's Day message, but let's be honest, mothers are leaders, aren't they? Mothers are leaders, and mothers are raising future leaders. So from that perspective, this is absolutely a Mother's Day message, but it's for everyone as well. I hope that this series has been challenging for you as you've gone through this. I hope that there have been some biblical principles that you've been able to draw out of it and apply to your life. We're going to review some of those today. One of the things I've appreciated most about this series is that we've been able to have five different leaders from this church involved in the teaching of it. Two different executive pastors and all three senior pastors of this church from its existence have been a part of teaching through this series. And I have absolutely loved that. And each voice brought a different perspective, some different principles, maybe some things that I wouldn't have initially seen there, but they drew out some things for us that we can take away and learn from. So I want to give you a little bit of review. Last week, this whole last week, I went back through all of the eight messages that have brought us to this point and wrote down what I thought was the main takeaway from each of those messages. So let me just put these up on the screen for you. The first one is that leaders should allow themselves to be deeply moved by problems that affect other people. Leaders should allow themselves to be deeply moved by problems that affect other people. Then leaders shouldn't just ask God to fix a problem. They should ask God to help them be part of the solution. That was from week two. From week three, leaders should get everyone involved wherever they are at right now. Leaders must deal with discouragement by focusing on the right things and not giving up. Leaders are at their best when their purpose is to glorify God. From week six, leaders should respond to antagonists with discernment, focusing on the mission and leaving vengeance to God. That was from Mike Andrus, our first senior pastor. And then Bill Jones, our second senior pastor, gave us leaders need to be transformed before they can multiply transformed people. And finally, last week, leaders need to guide people into a cycle of cleansing by God, not a cycle of collapse through human effort. So what do you think? Do you resonate with any of those leadership principles that were kind of pulled out of Nehemiah over the last couple of months? Can you identify with any of those or do you find any of those to be especially helpful for you? I want to take a minute right now, actually two minutes right now, and give you a chance to just talk about this a little bit, okay? So we're going to put those eight principles up on the screen behind me. Boom, there they go. 
Hopefully you can all read all of that. And here's what I want you to do. Just for a couple of minutes here, I'm going I'm to put a timer on the screen. I want you to share with someone next to you which of those principles do you find the most helpful right now? We're going to leave them up there. Which do you find the most helpful to you right now? Go ahead. All right, since this is the early service, you've probably had more than enough time. You've already used your allotment of words for before 10 a.m., right? There's coffee in the back, by the way. I was tempted to go down and grab mine during that break. There are two things I want to share with you today. The, the first um, is I want to teach you the next segment of the story of Nehemiah, right? So I want you to understand what happens next in this narrative about Nehemiah. But the second thing is I have a takeaway for you today, a leadership principle that will actually kind of launch into a part of our vision for our church here. Something that I hope will become a part of our DNA as a, as a body of believers that we will all be invested in and plugged into and something that we will be pouring more effort and energy into over the next several months. So this is just going to kind of plant a seed for that and explain some things about where we plan to go as a church in one particular area. But we'll get to that later. First, what I want to do is go back to our old buddy Nehemiah and understand what is happening in today's passage. Now, today's passage is actually two whole chapters. Does that sound crazy to you? That's a lot of ground to cover. It sounds pretty crazy to me. In fact, this is, not only is it two chapters, but it's 83 verses long. 83 verses is our passage today. I heard some gasps out there. You're afraid you're not going to get to brunch in time. I know. 71 of those verses are lists of names and places, mostly names and places. Over 200 people are mentioned, 200 different people mentioned by name in these two chapters, and over 3,000 others are referenced indirectly through family groups in our passage today. Now, you will be happy to know that I am not going to read all 83 verses to you. We are going to cover 
all 83 verses, but I'm not going to read them all to you today. That would take up about half of our message time. And you know what? You can do that later if you want to. It's a great challenge in understanding difficult to pronounce names. So you are welcome to go back and take that on. But I do want you to get a sense for what is in these chapters. So we are going to walk through all of this together. I'm just not going to read all of the names. I hope that that is okay with you. And I also want you to understand why those names are in there. That's going to be important later on. We'll come back to that. So if you want to follow along in your Bibles, turn to Nehemiah chapter 11. We'll cover Nehemiah 11 and 12 today. You can also go to the YouVersion Bible app, find us under the menu, and then events. You'll find First Free Church there, or you can go to efree.org slash Bible, and you can follow along with us there. There are six different sections in these two chapters. The first section kind of helps us understand most of the others. And I want to give you some important background before we get into this. Here's what you need to remember about Jerusalem. Before Nehemiah, Jerusalem was essentially a wasteland. The buildings were broken down. The walls were all broken down. The city was a bunch of rubble. It was basically deserted. This was supposed to be God's holy city. This was supposed to be the place where the people of Israel could gather together and worship God together, and yet it was essentially a ghost town. And there wasn't much happening there. There were some leaders living there. Zerubbabel had come back to rebuild the temple. But other than that, there wasn't much going on in the city of Jerusalem. So our first passage describes the relocating of people into Jerusalem to to repopulate this city. Here's what we find in verse 1 of Nehemiah chapter 11. The leaders of the people were living in Jerusalem, the holy city. A tenth of the people from the other towns of Judah and Benjamin, that's areas around there, were chosen by sacred lots to live there too in Jerusalem, while the rest stayed where they were. And the people commended everyone who volunteered to resettle in Jerusalem. Now that's section one relocating people to Jerusalem. And we're going to come back to that later. This is important. But I want to keep moving forward so that you can kind of get the big picture of what's happening in these two chapters. Section two is a list of provincial officials who moved to Jerusalem, people who relocated and they were some kind of government official, okay? So here is the list of the names of the provincial officials who came to live in Jerusalem. Most of the people, priests, Levites, temple servants, and descendants of Solomon's servants, continued to live in their own homes in the various towns of Judah, but some of the people from Judah and Benjamin resettled in Jerusalem. Okay, so just in case you missed it, there's a little recap they give us, and then they're going to give us this list of names of people, provincial officials who relocated to Jerusalem. Okay, you ready for it? Here's the list. You getting it? There's some great names in there. There you go. Okay? That's the list of provincial officials who moved back into Jerusalem. Section 3 is a list of where other people around Jerusalem were living. Okay? Here's what that list looks like. Any speed readers out there? Some of you may have, may have gotten it. Section four is a list of priests and Levites who served in the days of Nehemiah. And you guessed it, it looks like this. Lots of really quality names in there. Any ladies who are having babies, screenshot this and name your kid Babakui or whatever. 
lots of good stuff in there. Meshulam, Talman, Akub. I don't hear those out there very often. These are not taken. These are prime opportunities for you if you're going to have a child. So, and no jokes for me, please, okay? I've already had enough of that. Section five, dedication of the newly restored wall of Jerusalem. All right, so here's what that looks like. The dedication of the new wall of Jerusalem. The Levites throughout the land were asked to come to Jerusalem to assist in the ceremony. So here's what's happened. Up until this point, Nehemiah and the people, they've been rebuilding the wall. We've walked through all of that together. Now that wall is done, they're going to dedicate it. They're going to celebrate it. They're going to they're give thanks to God for the rebuilding of this wall. They were to take part in the joyous occasion with their songs of thanksgiving and with the music of cymbals, harps, and lyres. The singers were brought together from the region around Jerusalem and from the villages of the Netophathites. I think that's how you say that. They also came from Beth Gilgal and the rural areas near Geba and Asmaveth, for the singers had built their own settlements around Jerusalem. The priests and Levites first purified themselves, then they purified the people, the gates, and the wall. I, Nehemiah, led the leaders of Judah to the top of the wall and organized two large choirs to give thanks. One of the choirs proceeded southward along the top of the wall to the dung gate. Now, here's what was going to happen today. At the beginning of the week, my plan was to make this the focal point of our text today, the focal point of our message. And I had this great idea. We were going to put tape down here to represent the fountain gate and the tower of the ovens and the broad wall and all these different things. And, and we we're going to actually call up volunteers. I was going to have you come up here, I don't know, 15, 20 of you, and give you different assignments. One was going to be Nehemiah, one was going to be Ezra, and have you march around like they're about to do around the wall. And, and some poor person was going to have to go station at the dung gate, right? So I decided not to because I think we have something better that we can talk about today, but I want you to know about this procession that they did, okay? And I'll try to walk you through it here. One of the choirs, so that half the people, they've been divided, one of the choirs proceeded southward along the top of the wall to the Dungate. And, and I don't have a, a map for you or anything like that, but if you can picture in your mind, they are gathered on the western side of Jerusalem. This is not the Jerusalem of today. The Jerusalem of today is a huge city. Then there's the old city of Jerusalem. A bunch of you went with us there just about a month ago to see this. And the old city is still a pretty big place. The city of Jerusalem in Nehemiah's day was a sliver compared to what it is now. This long sort of north and south kind of sliver there with a temple at the top, the city of David, what's called the city of David at the bottom. David's palace was in there. And then the royal palace uh, for Solomon and others was up a little bit north of that. And there was a fountain over here from your perspective, I think it was. Uh, and so what they did is they all gathered on the western side of that city and they marched, half the people marched south down to the Dungate. And then they kept going on around. They went uh, Hoshia and half the leaders of Judah followed them along with Azariah, Ezra, Meshulam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, and Jeremiah. Then came some priests who played trumpets, including Zechariah, son of Jonathan, son of Shemaiah, son of Mataniah, son of Micaiah, son of Zachar, a descendant of Asaph. And Asaph, it's important to note, was one of the guys who wrote a bunch of the Psalms. He was a chief musician and a leader of choirs, and so he wrote a lot of the Psalms that were recorded for us in the Bible. And Zechariah's colleagues were Shemaiah, Azarel, Milali, Galilai, Maai, Nathanel, Judah, and Hanani. They used the musical instruments prescribed by David, the man of God, Ezra the scribe, led this procession. At the fountain gate, they went straight up. So the fountain gate is in the southern part of the, this old city of Jerusalem. At the fountain gate, they went straight up 
on the steps on the ascent of the city wall toward the city of David. They went north at this point. They passed the house of David, then proceeded to the water gate on the east. So they've made their way all the way around. They started in one spot on the western side, and this group has gone all the way around the bottom to the eastern side, and then back up again, almost up to the temple. The second choir, giving thanks, went northward the other way around to meet them. I, Nehemiah, followed them together with the other half of the people along the top of the wall, past the tower of the ovens to the broad wall, which, by the way, if you go to Jerusalem, you can still see remnants of the broad wall there today. It's this huge, big wall, why they called it the broad wall. Then past the Ephraim gate to the old city gate, past the fish gate and the tower of Hananel and on to the tower of the hundred. Then we continued on to the sheep gate. That's where they would bring the sheep in for the sacrifice. And then they would wash them there before they took them into the temple and stopped at the guard gate. The two choirs that were giving thanks then proceeded to the temple of God. So now they have traveled all the way around from the western side over to the eastern side together, right where the temple is. One had to go a little bit farther up here, and that's where the temple is, together there so that they could worship together. Where they took their places, so did I, together with the group of leaders who were with me. We went together with the trumpet playing priests, Eliakim, Maasiah, Miniman, Micaiah, Elioni, Zechariah, and Hananiah. Those are tough names. And the singers, Maasiah, Shemaiah, Eleazar, Uzi, Jehoiannin, Malkijan, Elam, and Edzer. They played and sang loudly under the direction of Jezriah, the choir director. Many sacrifices were offered on that joyous day, for God had given the people great cause for joy. The women and children also participated in the celebration, and the joy of the people of Jerusalem could be heard far away. That was section five, how they dedicated the new wall to God there. Then section six tells us about how they prepared for ongoing worship at the temple. So now there is a temple that's been built, there's a wall that's been built to protect it, and now they're making sure that we've got what we need to worship God at this temple. Here's what they did. Nehemiah chapter 12, verse 44. On that day, men were appointed to be in charge of the storerooms for the offerings, the first part of the harvest, and the tithes. They were responsible to collect from the fields outside the towns the portions required by the law for the priests and Levites. So essentially it was like a tax that they were to give to provide for this administration. For all the people of Judah took joy in the priests and Levites and their work. They performed the service of their God and the service of purification as commanded by David and his son Solomon. And so did the singers and the gatekeepers. The custom of having choir directors to lead the choirs in hymns of praise and thanksgiving to God began long ago in the days of David. And there he is again, Asaph. So now, in the days of Zerubbabel and of Nehemiah, all Israel brought a daily supply of food for the singers, the gatekeepers, and the Levites. The Levites, in turn, gave a portion of what they received to the priests, the descendants of Aaron. And we just walked through two chapters of Nehemiah including those 71 verses of names and places. And if you're taking notes, maybe you've got your study journal with you or you're taking notes in your program or whatever it is, um, here are the six sections on the screen behind me so that you can record kind of what we just walked through and kind of have a sense of the timeline of where we are going with all of this. But with all of that and with my initial plans to have you march around this room, which probably was a really bad idea, you can be thankful that I didn't didn't decide to stick with that. Would have been really awkward, wouldn't it? Just waiting for you to march all the way around the room. I thought it'd be cool, but 
with all of that, there's really just one question that I have for you. And it's not a very spiritual question. At least it doesn't seem that way at first. But here's the question. Why all the names? Why all the names? Out of 83 verses, 71 of them are just places and names. Most of them names. The places are, here's the name, and then here's where they were, the place where they lived. Why all the names? 200 different people mentioned by name in these two chapters. It is almost like the credits for a movie, which is why I had them scroll like the credits of a movie. It's all the people that this wall was brought to you by. And usually you don't even sit through those unless you know there's going to be some kind of a bonus clip at the end, right? So why all the names? It seems like a waste of valuable scripture real estate, doesn't it? It makes me think of what John said in John 21. He said, Jesus also did many other things. If they were all written down, I suppose the whole world could not contain the books that would be written. I don't know about you. But I would gladly trade those 71 verses of names for a few more stories of what Jesus did, right? I mean, can we be honest here? I know God appointed things in Scripture, but from my perspective, I'd like a couple more miracles. I would like to know more of the amazing things that Jesus did instead of learning about Shemaiah and Jeremiah and Ahaziah and all these different people. So why all the names? Have you ever called customer support to ask a question, and you just had a simple question. There's just one thing you needed to find out, and you had to sit there and listen through five or 10 or 20 minutes of pre-recorded answers to questions you don't have, waiting for someone to finally pick up the phone and just answer your question, and you're just sitting there, and they're saying, thank you for calling. The answers to most of our questions are on our website. You should probably go there instead of asking us. You should have tried to Google this because it's going to be faster to get the answer that way. And they're like, oh, you're still listening? Okay, well, you're caller number 42 and your wait time is three hours. And it's kind of annoying. That's what I feel like when I read through these lists of names. I'm like, just get me to more Jesus. Just get me to more Paul. Just get me to the good stuff. So why is this stuff in there? There are two reasons why I think these names are important. The first one is that it speaks to the credibility of the Bible. It helps to authenticate the message of the Bible. See, ancient fiction does not have this level of detail. You don't find these kinds of lists of names and genealogies and all of these specific things in ancient fiction. It speaks to the credibility and the authenticity of the Bible, that these are historical records that we're looking at, not just mythology. These people really lived Archaeologists regularly uncover facts that demonstrate the accuracy of these people and even their names. Even within the last 10 years, they've discovered a seal that shows the name of King Hezekiah. And so we know from a seal found at the place where it should be among the royal buildings of the time period it should be in the days of Hezekiah, a seal, a royal seal that says Hezekiah on it. And so we know that there is independent evidence of a King Hezekiah that's talked about in scriptures. This is the first evidence that that we have outside of the Bible that this guy actually existed, and yet there it is. Not long after that, a seal from Isaiah was found in the same general area. And and the construction of this is such that it only makes sense for it to be Isaiah the prophet, um, the way that that it's written. And so we have independent attestation 
of a, an Isaiah. And just two months ago, literally two months ago, right before our trip to Israel that a bunch of us went on together, this seal was found. This is the seal of a man named Nathan Melech. Now, Nathan Melech is this obscure guy. You've probably never heard of him before, but this seal was found literally last March. And here's the one place we have ever heard of this guy, Nathan Melech. Here it is. It's in 2 Kings. This is from when King Josiah was removing all the idol worship in Israel. It says, he removed from the entrance of the Lord's temple the horse statues that the former kings of Judah had dedicated to the sun. They were near the quarters of Nathan Melech. That's it. It's the only mention of this guy. The eunuch, an officer of the court, the king also burned the chariots and de- the, burned the chariots dedicated to the sun. This is the only time Nathan Melech is ever mentioned. And you wonder, why was he even in there? It's literally just because his house happened to be near the area where they burned these statues. That's it. It's the only reason he's in there. And yet we're told he's an officer of the court. He's a eunuch. That's all we know about them. And here is this, this royal seal called a bulla which says, literally, belonging to Nathan Melech, servant of the king. Found among the royal buildings right where it should be from the right time of King Josiah, everything is there. So some of the most obscure things that we find in the Bible actually end up helping to lend credibility to the information that is there, the detail that is there in Scripture. But I don't think that's the main reason these lists of names are included. I think that there's another reason. I think that we have to dig deeper to understand why would this big, long list be in there, all these different names of people. How many of you, and I am seeking interaction here, this is not rhetorical, how many of you know something of your family heritage, your lineage? Anybody? Like you kind of know something about your past, you know maybe where your ancestors came from, you know, um, how many of you know like what country they came from originally. Anybody know that? Okay. How many of you have studied your family history at all? Like you've actually looked into it and and researched it? Good, good. That's awesome. That's great. Does anyone know someone from their past who did something kind of cool, something interesting, something unique, something amazing, someone you're related to, a distant fourth great-grandfather twice removed or something? Does anyone know of anything amazing? Okay, what, what what did your ancestor do? Oh my goodness. So your ancestor was a spy during the Revolutionary War who got captured. That's amazing. Who else? Whose ancestor did something awesome or something happened to them? See, nobody wants to raise their hand now because I called on somebody. I know how this works. Yes, what do we got back here? He was in the Civil War? He was wounded. Yes. What else? Anybody have an ancestor that did something or you're connected to or you're like, wow, we're related to Abraham Lincoln? Yeah. He was where? He said the prayer at the first Thanksgiving. You're related to that guy? We need to start having you pray to begin our services. <laughs> There's a connection there. Wow. What else? Anybody else? Yeah. Oh my goodness, you're, you're like siblings. That's, 
He was the minister on the Mayflower and he gave the first prayer at the first Thanksgiving. That is phenomenal. You guys should totally do lunch after this and swap family stories. So some of you, you know, you know history about your family. You know things that happen. It's fascinating to study this stuff, isn't it? And we go, wow, that's really neat. That's amazing that they did that. And some of you may have even been inspired by your ancestors in some way. How many of you in some way are carrying on in the footsteps of a father or a grandfather or a mother or a grandmother? How many of you would say in some way, maybe it's a job or a ministry or just some weird habit that you do, you're somehow carrying on in the footsteps of someone else that came before you, a mother or a father or a parent, something like that. A lot of us do those types of things. We value our heritage. It ties back to our parents or our grandparents or our great-grandparents. Some people, and not as much in this culture, but we were just in Israel, many of us, just a a month ago, and talking to a lot of people over there. There's a lot of family businesses that get passed on from generation to generation to generation. In fact, the way the homes are set up, especially in the Palestinian area, you will have a home that is constructed with metal rods coming up out of the walls. So they build a house, one level, And there's all these metal rods sticking up out of the walls. And you drive by and you go, why are all those metal rods sticking up? Is that like to, I don't know, is that a a security system or is that to keep the birds away or what is that all about? And they're like, no, no, no. That's for when the, the son gets married and needs a place to stay, they will build another level on the house. And, and then they will add more rods on top of that one. And then they will continue, and you'll get layer upon layer of this house that eventually becomes a tall house with each layer being a different family, like a different generation living in this thing. And it gets passed on from generation to generation to generation. It's an incredibly important thing for the firstborn son in many families to carry on the legacy of his father and the business of his father. In fact, in some cases, what will happen is the firstborn son would be able to go get a better living elsewhere if he were to go get an education and get a better job and maybe a higher status of some kind. But instead, he will sacrifice to follow in the footsteps of his father, and then he will also help to support the younger siblings who are not expected to carry on in the footsteps so that the younger siblings can go to college. And so you'll have a family with four or five kids where the oldest son is working with the dad, learning that trade in a maybe a a less than profitable, I mean, it's a profitable business, but it's not the most he could do so that the two of them together can support the younger siblings and they go off and become doctors and lawyers. They go to university and they get degrees and and all the better jobs. And they all kind of work together as a family to do that. But that oldest son will carry on in the footsteps of his father. We value these kinds of legacies. And even some of you maybe who didn't raise your hand, um, not because you're embarrassed, but because you couldn't, but because maybe you didn't have great parents or great grandparents. Maybe you don't even know who they were. And and maybe, to be honest, maybe it was a little sad for you when I asked you to raise your hand and you're like, "I, I can't do that. And that just speaks to the fact that this kind of matters to us. We do value. And of course, for those of us that have trusted Jesus, our new father is in heaven. And and that's our spiritual lineage that we have. And and we have someone who led us to Christ. And so we have spiritual lineage there. But we value these connections with our past, with our history. Time Magazine says that the family history industry is over a billion dollars a year. Over a billion dollars spent on family history. It's big business. In fact, it also lists that family history research, genealogy, is the second most popular hobby in this country. Right behind, anyone want to guess? What's the most popular hobby in this country? 
I haven't heard it. It's gardening. Gardening is the most popular. Right after that comes researching our family history. Isn't that amazing? We've got TV shows about this and all that stuff. Well, genealogies were even more important to people in the ancient Near East. It was super important for them to know where they came from and who was related to whom and which ancestor did something that was worth remembering, that was worth honoring. And the hope was that they would follow in the footsteps of these ancestors so they would record this information. And if they did anything noteworthy, record that so that they could follow after them. So just for a second here, if you'll indulge me, take off your 2019 glasses and put on 400 BC glasses. Put yourself into the shoes of a great-grandson or a great-granddaughter thinking about their ancestor. Maybe it was Miniamin or Uzi or Bakbukia. And imagine being that person looking back at these lists of people who sacrificed to go restore and rebuild Jerusalem and thinking to yourself, we've got a really weird family name. But... My great-grandfather, he did something really amazing for God. And maybe I will too. These lists would tell them how their family became a part of something bigger than themselves. How their family came to live in Jerusalem instead of the land that they were originally given. And more importantly than that, it told them why. It told them the purpose behind where their family now lived for generations. There was a vision that their ancestors were a part of. They sacrificed to come and live in and rebuild this important city where the people could come and gather to worship God. So with that frame of mind, let's go back to verse 1 of Nehemiah chapter 11 and read this again. The leaders of the people were living in Jerusalem, the holy city. A tenth of the people from the other towns of Judah and Benjamin were chosen by sacred lots to live there too, while the rest stayed where they were. This is such a short sentence. It's easy to just fly by and not even notice the significance that is here. But we have to understand, this was not an ideal time to move into Jerusalem. The, the streets were a mess the buildings were torn down. The walls had been torn down until very recently. You couldn't really grow food there because there wasn't the kind of land to be able to do that. There wasn't much of an industry going on because so few people actually lived there. The former luster of this once great city was almost completely gone. On top of that, there was all this work to do. So now we have to rebuild, we have to beautify, we have to make it look better, we have to fix all the rubble that's lying all over the place. We have to clean everything up. And who would uproot their family to go move into a situation like that? Moving into Jerusalem meant leaving your friends and your family. You could still see them, of course, but not nearly as often. It meant building up a new support network. It meant finding a new job. Or moving your small business, but not getting to take your customer base with you. This was a huge sacrifice for them. It was a huge commitment. And some people actually volunteered to do this. Verse 2 says, the people commended everyone who volunteered to resettle in Jerusalem. Now, this could mean a couple of things. It could mean that they somehow identified all of the people 
And then they cast lots, which is kind of like dice. So they cast lots to pick a family. This is what it could mean. They picked a family. They went to them and said, would you volunteer to move into Jerusalem? And the family said, yes. They'd say, okay, you volunteered. Very good. If the family said no, they'd say, okay, we'll move on. We'll, we'll roll the dice again, cast lots again. We'll go ask another family. It might have meant that. Or it might have meant that the leaders, the provincial officials said, yeah, we cast lots and your family was chosen. You're moving. But I don't want to move. Sorry, we're in charge. You're moving. And then on top of that, other people volunteered to resettle in Jerusalem. We don't really know which is which. Did everybody get a chance to volunteer or reject if they wanted to? Or were some people just chosen and forced to move there because they needed to rebuild the city? And others volunteered. Regardless, some people volunteered to sacrifice their old way of life to be pioneers in this new and challenging place. So why would they do it? Why would they do it? Well, because they believed in a vision that was bigger than their lifestyle. And they believed in a purpose that mattered more than their comforts. They believed in a mission that was more important than their closeness to family and friends. So here is the leadership principle for today. Leaders will go where others won't, to accomplish a vision. So let me ask you, what vision are you accomplishing today? What vision are you pursuing that is bigger than you? Are you willing to sacrifice some of your comforts, your lifestyle, the things maybe that you've worked for, for a vision, for a purpose that is more important than anything else? Let's go back to the first two principles we talked about today from our first two messages. Leaders should allow themselves to be deeply moved by problems that affect other people. And leaders shouldn't just ask God to fix a problem, they should ask God to help them be part of the solution. What burden has God put on your heart? Are you allowing yourself to be moved by problems that affect other people? Are you willing to be a part of the solution, to ask God to make you a part of the solution? Are you willing to go where others won't go to accomplish a vision that is so much bigger than anything else, bigger than you? There are many ways that we could apply this lesson, and maybe some of those are coming to your head right now, but I just want to take one example and give you one example of a purpose that is bigger than you, a vision that is bigger than any of us, and here it is, bringing the good news about Jesus to the people around us who do not know him. Now, we often call this outreach. Really, we should just call it being a follower of Jesus. Because Jesus said, if you love me, if you want to follow me, then obey my commandments. And right before he left this earth, he said, here's my commandment for you. Go and make disciples of me and teach them to obey everything that I've taught you. This is just supposed to be what we do as followers of Jesus. And so what I want to do in just a couple of minutes here is share how we want to do this as a church. Some vision for how we want to reach out to our community and what that's going to look like. And it might explain some of the things that you have seen over the last few months and the things that you will see over the next few months. There are four main aspects that we see to our outreach vision here. The first is events. Events are like a wide part of the funnel they don't go super deep, but they cast a big net. They impact a lot of people. They're a great way to get started. They're a great way to bring the community into our doors, into our building, or to take us sometimes out into the community on a big scale, to make an introduction, to get to know people. 
to bring people here who might never come here for a service, but will come here for a concert or a comedian or an Easter egg hunt or a trunk or treat or some other type of event that we do. That's why we do those things. It's not just because they're fun. It's so that we can build relationships and connect with people all around us. Then there are partners. There are many different types of outreach efforts that we want to be a part of. Many things that hopefully you want to be a part of, but that may not make sense for us to start a new thing on our own. We don't need to reinvent the wheel. And so we want to evaluate and partner with ministries that are doing really good things in our area and work with them and have all of us work with them in some different capacity, those who God is leading to do that, instead of trying to make something new on our own. Then there's teams. Outreach teams are something that we are starting here. The idea is that this is a platform, not a program. It's an open platform approach to outreach. Now, oftentimes what happens in churches is that a church will identify a program or two or three or four that they say, this is the way we do outreach here. This is our approach to outreach. This is our program for outreach. And there's a couple of problems with that. Um, One problem is that it's not really a one-size-fits-all approach, and so there are always a lot of people in the church who are going, eh, none of that seems to be the way God has gifted me. I'm not really sure how I can get involved in that. Or I have a passion for this over here. And you don't offer anything to help me get involved in that way. And then the other problem with that approach is that all programs have a life cycle. Methods have a life cycle. People change. Culture changes. Approaches need to change over time. Methods change. The message stays the same. But the methods need to change. And so if we, as a church, attach ourselves to certain outreach programs and say, well, that's our thing then eventually we will find that those things may not work anymore. And so our goal is to build a platform that facilitates a lot of different types of outreaches and even allows for a tremendous amount of creativity there so that we will provide training and guidelines and coaching and accountability and resources to help us launch all sorts of outreach efforts into our community that we may never have even thought of. Creative ideas that God may lay on your heart that we want to help equip and facilitate. And finally, we get to missional living. What is missional living? Well, very simply, it's living every day of my life on mission for God. To do the things that he has called me to do, to obey him, and that includes sharing Jesus with other people. That includes going and making disciples by building relationships, connecting with people, and sharing the love of Jesus with them in an intentional and authentic and relevant way. It takes sacrifice, the sacrifice of many things that I may want to do so that I can do the things that he has called me to do. If you want a picture of this, go back to our archives from last year on our website and watch the How to Neighbor series, and you'll see an idea of how you can live missionally in your neighborhood and at work and at school and at the store and everywhere you go. What does that look like? That's missional living because the gospel was never supposed to end with you. The gospel came to you on the way to someone else. Don't let it stop with you. We all want to get there. We should all want to get there as followers of Jesus where every day we are living missionally for him. Now, this is something we have to work at continually. Let me close by tying this all together for us. 2,500 years ago, there were people in Israel who sacrificed homes and family and friends, jobs, comfort, lifestyles, future plans 
in order to redeem a city, an area for God, to rebuild and reclaim that area for God. They moved in there knowing that it needed work, knowing that it was going to be hard so that they could bring God's redemption to that community and rebuild it from the inside out. Why did they do it? Because they believed in a vision that was bigger than their lifestyle. Because they believed in a purpose that mattered more than their comforts. Because they believed in a mission that mattered more than even their closeness to their family and friends. What if that vision for you and me was to reach out into our community with the love of Jesus? Isn't that a more important purpose than what they had? What are we going to sacrifice to reach out into the communities around us and redeem them for God? to rebuild them for God, to see transformed lives? Are we willing to give up comforts and lifestyle and maybe even some closeness to people that we've become familiar with so that we can reach people with the gospel? What are we going to do? For some people, missional living may even look like deciding that they're going to pack up and actually move into a community that does not have any gospel witness so they can become an anchor and a hub for outreach to that community. I see the day when every neighborhood around here has someone, some family, some person, some individual from this church who lives in that place to reach that place for Christ. And where we have outreach teams of people that partner with them to make sure that they're not getting burned out, to make sure that they're supported, and to partner with them in the outreach that they're doing. I see the day when our people blanket this area, not just with where they live, but with where they live missionally, reaching out to their neighbors, building relationships, sacrificing to redeem people and places for God. Here's why. Because leaders will go where others won't. Leaders will sacrifice what others won't for the sake of a vision. Would you pray with me? God, even as I say these words, I am convicted about the times I have failed to do this. You have called us to go You've called us to sacrifice. You've called us to, to not even look back and to live our life for you and to, to go reach more people for you and introduce them to you. Lord, forgive us for how often we get caught up in our comfortable lives or how we have failed to do what you told us to do. The one thing, the one job that you left us with to go and make disciples. So Lord, as we talk about this vision this morning, just plant seeds for, for what we want to do in the future here. God, I pray that you would help us to be mindful and observant, listening to you carefully, to hear your voice, to know where you want us to go. What part of this do you want us to play? How will you use us to reach this community? There are tens of thousands of people around us who don't know you and whose lives are a mess. And we have the answer. And how selfish of us to not be willing to sacrifice to go bring that to them. Give us wisdom to know how to do that, Lord. And in your name we pray, amen.